thank you so much, Paul. Thank you also to that praise team. Man, I love that great singing. Can I get an oh yeah from y'all on that? My dad said, if you can't preach after singing like that, your wood's just wet. That's all she wrote, so that ought to set your heart on fire. It is a blessing to be back with the Woodbury Church. It's exciting to be here on the day when you're welcoming Presley, and I'm confident that God is going to just continue to add to this great team. I'm thankful for Patrick letting me preach to you this morning. Uh, I don't remember what year the first time we was here. I want to say 2015 or something like that. It's been a while, and it's been great to see how God has continued to bless this church. If you're a guest here like me, maybe this is your first time to be here, let me encourage you. You have come to a wonderful place. You've come to a place where folks really do believe that Jesus is the Lord and that he has the answers that our community, our family, and our world needs. And can I get an amen from the church on that? So I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll check this out and get to know. And like the brother who uh, said, hey, I'm placing membership here, you'll make this your church home because it's a great place to have family and to have support. And it is good to be with Pam and Leon. Uh, Pam has been, you know, through so much just living with Leon. And uh, I... Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that she's, uh, she's doing well. They were and are a blessing uh, in our life. Um, I've got to say that my wife and I have uh, driven around just a little bit here, and we're just jealous. Uh, not just for the beautiful greenery, not just for the, the, the scenery here, but your gas prices. Uh, Catherine filled up our car, she told me on the way to the airport. She said she filled it up, and she was so excited because she found some, some inexpensive gas, that is, low, less expensive gas. She found gas that was under $6 a gallon. Isn't that a shock that she was able to find that? At the gas station close to our house there in Malibu, I want to say it's six twenty-five or something like that right now. Six eighty-nine. My wife is a gas Sherlock, let me tell you. She knows... Where every and is there anybody else here who would confess that you've driven ten blocks to save a nickel a gallon on gas? Can, can, okay, all right, I, I, I get you. And, and and Catherine is so so good about it. It reminded me of something that will get us to where we're heading this morning. If you have your Bibles or one of those glowing tablets you'd like to use, go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter twenty-four. But to get there, I need to tell you about one of the very few times I have won anything. It was a number of years ago when a Christian radio station in Charlotte ran a promotion for free gasoline. Here's what it was. The station's call numbers were 93.5. And they said that for one month, they're going to drive their 93.5 van, which had the big you know, wrap around it so you could see what it was. They're going to drive it to a gas station. And at 9 o'clock on the morning, they're going to park it there. And anybody who comes to that gas station and gets in the line where the van is parked, they're going to give you 93.5 seconds of free gas. Well, it was a great promotion. News spread all over Charlotte that this new radio station, 93.5, a Christian radio station, was going to give away this gas. I thought it was brilliant, but I thought there's no way in the big city of Charlotte that I'm ever going to even see that van. The first day of the program. I am driving to my office in the morning, heading to a staff meeting, and here comes the van, and it goes right by me, doing the opposite direction. Man, I whipped a 
legal U-turn and got <laughs> right behind it, followed it all the way to the gas station. I was one of the first people in line. I was so excited. I pulled up, and, and this fella had gotten out his stopwatch and said, Hi, I'm with 93.5. I said, I know exactly who you are and what you're doing. Thank you. Love Christian radio. Listen to your station. And so he said, All right. Then he asked me a question I wasn't prepared for. He said, Which grade of gasoline would you like? Well, the most expensive one, please, right? The one I never buy. And so he puts that in, 93.5 seconds, tick around as that liquid gold goes into my tank. It was time when gas was high, not as high as it is now, but I thought, oh, Catherine would be... And then I realized, Catherine, she's at, she's at home, and we're not just but a couple of blocks. I called, so where are you? She said, I'm at Walmart. Leave the cart there. Get in the Durango. The gas van is at Valentine. Oh, great. Boy, she hung up. As I was pulling out and heading down the street, I saw her coming the other way, waved to her, and she gave me one of these, best husband ever, right, you know? <laughs> Because I have free gas. So she got in line. She got the free gas. I'm driving to the office. And then I thought about Carlos. Carlos Rostro and his wife Darla had started a new business. It was a kind of cool clothing business. But they were, well, it was financially tough getting it going. And I, and I knew they were in tough straits. So, man, I text, well, I pulled over and texted oh. Carlos and said, Hey, man, the gas van is at Valentine. You need to come check. You can get free gas because he didn't live but a few blocks from it. I got a text back as I was getting to the office. Thank you, Pastor. Got in line. Thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. You know, and I'm like, yes. I walked into the staff meeting. We always start with sharing what is something God has done good in your life this week. And I said, I get to start. I get to start. And I told them the story of the van and me getting the gas and Catherine getting the gas and Carlos getting the gas. And I looked across the table and my secretary, who'd worked with me for about 10 years at that point, was sitting there like this. <laughs> And I said, Kathy, what's wrong? She said, oh, it's just wonderful to know you've got some friends you care about. <laughs> and I looked at the youth minister, Brad, who'd worked there even longer than that, and said, yeah, aren't they lucky? <laughs> what were they thinking right then? Why didn't you what? Yeah, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you call me? I felt so terrible. I said, oh, this guy's up. I should have. Listen, I'll buy you all gas. Oh, no, 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 no. It's too late now. It's too late now. And they gigged me and bugged me about that. Now, it's one thing if you, you know, oops, whoops, I should have called you about a tank of free gas or a few seconds of free gas. But the proverb writer writes a very different story about a moment when saying something can save a life. Let's read this together. He says, rescue those being led away to death and hold back those staggering towards slaughter. I'm sorry, it's kind of a dark picture for a beautiful day, but get the picture. He says, what if you saw somebody who was being led away to be executed right in front of you? What if you saw somebody who was being led away to their death, but you knew something that could save them? Maybe you knew that they were falsely accused. And all you had to do was say, wait, stop. She didn't do it. He didn't do it. They were with me. I'm their alibi. It's not true. Or maybe it's somebody who is, is, is preparing to kill them just out of anger. You could say something. You could say, wait, everybody, stop this. But what if you say this? But we knew. Can, can you read that with me? But we knew nothing about this. But you got to say it like, eh, it's not my fault. But we knew nothing. 
hey, not, not my business. I don't know. I, you know, it's not my fault. Now watch what he says. Does not he who guards the heart perceive it? Does not he who rather weighs the heart and does not he who guards your life know it? And here's the tough sentence. Ouch. Will he not repay how many? According to what they've done. This is a very sobering verse. It's a verse that says to a teenager, if you are silent when you could speak out and stop somebody. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been with a friend or been around somebody who's gotten drunk. And you see them grabbing keys and heading for a car. What do you do? Do you say something? Do you speak up? Can you imagine if you were in the parking lot and you saw a little kid on a Sunday morning running towards their car as another car with a driver who is unaware starts backing up? Surely, surely you'd do what? You'd holler. You'd yell. Stop. Look out. Right? Even if it was your own kid and they'd misbehaving, you'd still say, no, no, wait, 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 no. Because of two words. Everybody say, love speaks. love speaks. If you really love someone, you just can't keep quiet. If you really care about them, you're going to say something. If you really believe, man, God, thank you for putting this person in my life, you're gonna, not going to let them by accident drink poison, and you're not going to let them wander into death. I don't know if you can feel where this lesson is heading. But here's what Jesus said we need to be speaking about. Go into all the world, he said, and preach the gospel. Can everybody say those three words? Preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be, what's that last word? Condemned. Jesus says to his disciples and later says to them, now teach them to obey the things I've commanded you. So here's Jesus' words to you if you're a Christian. How, how many Christians, just out of curiosity, do we have in here? If you're a Christian, just raise your hand. Yeah. If you won't own up in here, you're toast out there, buddy. Let me, let me tell you. I'm going to give you one more chance. How many Christians do we have by raise of hands? All right. So if you're a believer, here's Jesus' call, his commission to you. Go tell other people about the gospel. So a personal question. What do you think holds us back? What keeps us from sharing the gospel as Jesus calls on us to do? There's a, there's a magic duo. There's two guys that do magic together you may have heard of called Penn and Teller. Uh, uh, Penn Gillette is tall, kind of balding. Teller is short, and the thing he does in the act is he's always silent. They've got a big uh, theater in Las Vegas where they pack the house. I mean, they make millions every year. And one of the things that most people who follow them on, uh, say, social media know is they're atheists. And they love making fun of Christians. They love making fun of anybody who believes in God because they just think that's, you know, that's like believing that we're really sorcerers or magicians or something. I mean, give me a break. Which is why an article caught my eye a few months ago about an interaction that Penn, the more vocal of the two, had with a Christian who came to see his show. 
After the show, they'll stand around and sign autographs. And this gentleman stood and waited patiently, complimented him about the show, had him sign his brochure, said, I used to do magic when I was a kid and I love what you're doing. He said, oh, thank you, thank you. And then the guy reached into a satchel he had and pulled out a Bible and said, I, I know you may not believe like I do, but I want you to know that God loves you so much he gave his son for you. And I couldn't come and sit and enjoy your show tonight without telling you that and without giving you this. It's yours. I don't know if you've even ever read it, but I want you to know being a Christian is the best decision I ever made. And a guy as talented and as smart as you are, I hope you'll at least read it. Now, I would have expected what I know of Penn Jillette, that he'd have gone, you've got to be kidding me. Give me a break. Do I look like an idiot? Dude, I've read a Bible before. <laughs> Get out of here. But instead, Penn Jillette shook his hand and said, I totally respect you. And thank you for doing this. It's clear you really believe it. And I respect that. Now, the only reason I know about this, and I can tell you, is because somebody else saw it, and a, and a uh, journalist interviewed him and said, did this really happen? Because it started kind of spreading, and Penn Jillette said, absolutely. You can look it up on the internet and read about it. But the quote that punched me in the face was, when the journalist asked him about the moment, he said, absolutely, I was nice to the guy. I totally respect him. I mean, seriously, here's the sentence. If you really believe there's a hell, and you really believe people are going there if they don't follow Jesus, what kind of jerk do you have to be to not tell them? How much do you have to hate the world if you know that not to tell everybody you see? Okay, that's not a preacher's line. That's an atheist who says, love speaks. If you care about somebody, you're going to tell them. So for all those of you who raised your hand, can I ask you a personal question? How's it going for you? That telling them part. When's the last time you invited somebody to come to church? When's the last time you shared your faith with someone? My goal here is not to make you feel bad or guilty. I'm just asking you, how are you doing at speaking about Jesus? Because we live in a world that desperately needs to hear the good news. Amen? And Jesus didn't say, well, this is for the professionals. But there are some of us who've come to believe that. Well, that's why we got Presley here. He's going to tell people about Jesus. And, and, and Patrick's going to tell. And Steve, you know, our, our, our real pros, they're the ones that are going to do it. And when you, when you ask Christians, in fact, if I ask you, why don't you share more your faith? Do you know Christianity Today did a big survey? And in the survey, they asked people that. And they got the top two answers. I don't know if you'd believe what the top two answers are, but here's what they are. Here's answer number one. People said, I don't know enough. That's why I don't share Jesus. I mean, I'm just afraid that somebody's going to ask me a question, you know, did Adam have a navel? I don't know, you know, I'm not sure, you know. Uh, what about the dinosaurs? Whatever the question is that stumps you, that they just say, I don't know enough. I just need to leave it to people like Patrick who really know the Bible, or maybe some of our elders, they'll do it. And if that's not your excuse, then maybe your excuse is number two. I'm not good enough. I mean, I just, if 
people saw me trying to make somebody a Christian or share Jesus with somebody, if I went to my neighbor and knocked on his door and said, hey, come to church with me, I'm a Christian, my neighbor would go, no way, you're a Christian? Brenda, come here, you're never going to believe this. Our next door neighbor's a Christian. We had no idea. I mean, I've seen the way you cuss your dog out, so I mean, I'm just shocked here that you're a Christian, right? Maybe that's how you feel, that, that if you went to somebody at work and said, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, and I'd love to tell you about Jesus, they'd go, what? no way. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. And as a preacher, i got to tell you, when I read that article in Christianity Today, I went, okay, there's got to be one place in Jesus' life that could help people deal with those two excuses. And it hit me. It's the weirdest story. I mean the weirdest story in all of the New Testament. And certainly the strangest story about the life of Christ. It's in Matthew chapter 5. And if you've got a Bible, open up there because I want you to underline something. Or open it up on your phone and maybe you can highlight it. The Bible says they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. The lake there is often called the Sea of Galilee in the Bible. My wife and I were actually there a few years ago, blessed to take a, lead a group on a trip to the Holy Land. And if you look across from what is typically the Jewish side, where the Jewish communities were, to the other side of the lake, where the Greeks and Romans, more of them lived, you could see a sloping place, which is where historians say this happened. The Bible says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came to the from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. Okay, hang on just for a second. If you think in your mind, cemetery, what kind of picture do you see? Green, flat lawn, right? Okay, scratch that picture in Jesus' day. I want you to see a little slope with a bunch of little white sheds on it only they're made of rock so they're small rock rooms and each family has one and when somebody dies you just wait until their bones you know are there they rot and you, and you, you put the bones in there it's called an ossuary and, and you would pile in there grandma and grandpa's bones and everybody's bones that's kind of your family uh, tomb now you got this picture in your mind by the way on holy days guess what they do they go out and paint them white Jesus, remember when he said it? Oh, you're like whitewashed sepulchers, but you're full of dead men's bones. That's exactly what he's talking about. So Jesus pulls up in a boat, and he gets out, and from one of these bone houses comes the guy who lives there. All right, already I'm creeped out by somebody who'd push over Uncle Ed and Aunt Etha, and, you know, and I'm just going to sleep right here. But we find out that he's demon-possessed. The story's in all four Gospels. It must be important. Every one of the Gospels tells it. And when you put the whole thing together from each of their perspectives, here's what you get. He's demon-possessed. He's got to be strong because he had bits of chain and rope hanging off him because he's been tied up and nobody was strong enough to subdue him. And he's naked. So we have a naked, crazy guy coming screaming out of the bone houses, running at Jesus and the disciples. What would you do? I mean, can you imagine this coming down the hillside? I'd, I'd do that, Leon. I'd jump in that boat and be rowing and say, Jesus, you walk and meet us on the other side. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. But Jesus is saying, come out of him, come out of him, come out of him. And it seems like the demons are responding because he's saying, get away. What do you want with us? You know, and then Jesus has a very simple conversation 
that is so freaky. Here it goes. Jesus said to him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he says. For we are many. Let that sink in. He's not talking to the guy. Who's he talking to? We. Legion means a platoon. That's like 2,000 soldiers. For we are many. Already I got chills, man. This is like some creepy horror film, right? Our name is Legion. What does it sound like? Our name is Legion, for we are many. Or Goldo, I guess there's many of them. Our name is Legion. We are many. Shut up. Move over. There's all these demons inside this guy. And Jesus is saying, come out. And the demons start begging. If this story freaks you out at all, okay? If you think, I'm going to have creepy dreams about this. Just know this, teenagers. Every time Jesus is confronted by demons or Satan's power, demons beg Jesus' commands. Because he that's within us is more powerful than he that's in the world. Can I get it? Oh, yeah. So you don't have to run around scared and nervous about this, right? Because demons have got nothing on Jesus. In fact, the demons start begging, please, please, don't send us into the abyss. People say, what's the abyss, Jeff? I have no idea. But they didn't want to go there, all right? Don't send us into the abyss. Let us go into the pigs, which is really funny. Any Jewish person who hears this story in Jesus' day starts grinning. Because pigs were unclean. No Jew was going to eat those pigs. They were raising those pigs, in all probability, for the Roman guard unit that worked and lived in that area. This was their livelihood. <laughs> okay, here's the sentence. I did not make this up. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, and he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. <laughs> One sentence. I wish I could turn Steven Spielberg loose on this. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. You got this picture? Anybody here ever been to a pig farm? Okay, you ever seen? Um, these are not little cute little porky the pigs. Big old fat hogs and, and maybe some little ones. And all of a sudden, all, of a sudden, all 2,000 of them got their own personal demon and and they run down, and they throw themselves in the water and drown. It's swine suicide is what happens here. My dad used to say it's the first biblical case of deviled ham. And so down they go and drown themselves in this water. And then the sentence in the Bible that makes me laugh the hardest. Here it is. Those tending the pigs. Just hold up right there for a second. All right. Who do you hire to watch pigs, right? I mean, you don't need a PhD to watch the pigs, to be a, what do you call them, swine boy, a hog poker? I, I, I don't know, you know, pig watcher. And so I, it says those, so there's at least a couple of them. And I'm just, you know, imagine Bubba and his buddy, and they're out there watching the, watching the hogs. I mean, they only have one job. Don't let anybody steal them. Don't let anybody kill them, right? If an animal comes, keep them away. If thieves come, keep them away. They don't own them. That's why the word tending is there. They do not own them. They are watching them. And in one minute, every single one of their pigs is dead and floating in the lake. This is panic time. No wonder they ran off into the town. Although, where's the first place they had to go? 
to the owner. <laughs> I'd, I'd give a buck just to see that picture and hear them, you know. Well, sir, we don't exactly know how it happened. Um, uh, Charlie was eating lunch, and I was watching the pigs, and all of a sudden one of them went, and then just ran. No, sir, they, they all ran right into the lake. Uh, no, it appears not a one of them could swim. They, they all uh, drowned right there. No, I'm not lying. I didn't know. We did not steal your pig. You don't believe me? Come with me. They're all floating right now in the lake. It's like a pig pontoon bridge. You can walk right across to Joppa if you want to. I mean, it's right there. Here's what the Bible says. Those in the town came out to see it. Well, of course, they didn't have Netflix back then. So the Bible says that everybody in the town and countryside went out to see what had happened. Hey, there's 2,000 pigs floating in the lake. No way. Come on, let's go. And they get out there and they're staring at all this. And then somebody says, wait a minute. You think that's something? Look over there. And sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed, and in his, and I love this phrase, in his right mind, is crazy Harry. <laughs> well, I mean, ex-crazy Harry, right? The demon-possessed man. Now, go with me on this. If you're from the town, and you get out there, and you see him, and you know, you say, well, how do you know they know? Excuse me, where do you think the chains and the rope on him came from? Where'd they come from? Town people. You say, why would townspeople do that? Okay, if you're going to bury grandma, wouldn't you send out a couple of guys to tie him up so he doesn't come leaping naked over the casket and kind of wrecking the funeral, right? So everybody in the town knew about the crazy man. I bet the kids, I bet the, the, the sixth graders and seventh graders would dare one another. Go run through the tombs. Just go run through the tombs. I bet you won't do it. Oh, everybody heard about him. He's naked. He's strong. And now they're seeing him meek and mild and sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. Don't you think the town would go over and say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for curing him. They didn't do it. You know what they did? They said, can you please leave now? Why? I don't know if they were scared that he was going to do the chickens, what he did to the pigs. I mean, it was already an economic disaster, right? Or I don't know if they were saying, oh my goodness, this guy is way too powerful. Look what he, this, he's like an evil sorcerer or something. I don't know, but I know what they did. They said, please leave. And I know what Jesus did. He didn't argue with them. He didn't say to them, why, I love you. I'm going to die for you. He said, fine. Can I just give you my opinion? I think this is a moment when you and I can look at it and say, Jesus doesn't want me ever to shove the gospel down anybody's throat against their will. Jesus doesn't want me to beat up somebody, holler at somebody. Jesus doesn't want me to baptize people by force. It's not going to do any good. If it would work, we'd be out on the highway with shotguns right now. Get out and get in, right? But the, Jesus says, nope. And he turns to the disciples and says, let's go. And guess what? They all go right back down to the boats. And this is where the story takes a sideways turn. Because when they go in to get in the boats, one person from the town runs down and says, I want to go with you. Who is it? The ex-crazy guy. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense. Would you want to go back into the town you had run naked through for years? I don't think so, right? I'd want to move to a new place, kind of get a new start. 
here's what he says. He begs. It's interesting how many people beg in this story. He begs, let me go with you. And the double shock is Jesus says, no. I'm, I'm not confident Thaddeus is like, whoa, harsh. Jesus, I mean, he just wants to come with us. We'll make room. You remember he was clothed, it said? Those weren't his clothes. I bet some of the disciples gave him a cloak, put something around them. Let the guy come with us. But Jesus has a totally better vision. He didn't need a 13th apostle, but he did need somebody to go back into that town and do what? Yeah, let's read the orange, all of us together. Here we go. Go home to your and do what? How much? Boom, there's Jesus' whole evangelism seminar in a sentence. Go tell what the Lord has done for you. Can you say that with me? Go tell what the Lord has done. I mean, it's really simple. One more time. Go tell what the Lord has done for you. Now, remember our excuses? Oh, I don't know enough. How much did this guy know? Well, um, I was naked, crazy, demon-possessed, and I met Jesus, and now I'm not. <laughs> Boom, that's his testimony. Get him here at Woodbury, right, you know? I like to tell you that before I met Jesus, I was messed up, and Jesus changed my life. Anybody here able to say that? Anybody here able to say, man, I tell you what, Jesus has made my life worth living. But wait a minute, Jeff, weren't there two excuses? You're right. I don't know enough, and I'm not good enough. Well, if you're saying you're not good enough, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever streaked naked through Target? <laughs> no? No takers on that one? Well, looks like you're good enough, because this guy goes back into the town, and the Bible says he went all the way through the Decapolis, that's a Greek word meaning Decapolis, ten cities. He went all the way through the county teaching about Jesus, and later in the book of Acts you find there's all these Christians there. Who do you think told him? This guy. But don't miss where Jesus said to start. Go. That word breaks my heart every time I read this. The guy had a home. He had a home. He wasn't homeless. He had a home. And by the way, the Greek there where Jesus says Aramaic, rather, to your own people, your own people, that possessive term indicates, some commentators suggest, that he was the head of a household before this happened. He was a dad. Okay, those would be rough teacher-parent conferences, right? You know? I see your mom here. Your dad's not. No, you don't want my dad here, okay? You just, you don't. In fact, how many kids had come up to them in school and said, hey, man, I saw your dad the other day. I mean, I saw your dad the other day, right? He's knocking on his own front door. The kids say, Mom! It's dad. And they go hide in the closet. Give me the broom. I'll get rid of him. No, no, mom. He's, he looks okay. And he's got clothes on. <laughs> Baby, you go to the back room. Let me take care of this. Can you see her opening that door? Can you see him? Maybe with tears in his eyes. Baby, it's me. 
I'm okay. They're gone. What does she say? Does she immediately rush out and hug him? Is she not sure? But I know one question she got is what? How did this happen? And he says, funny thing you should ask. That's why I'm here. I met a man named, and he changed my life. Wow. Wow. Well, church is about over, and here's your assignment for the day. Go tell what the Lord has done for you. Can you say that with me? Go tell what the Lord in honor of Presley, can I just hear the team say it? Do you know what you guys need to do now that Presley's here, your new youth minister is here? Say it with me. Moms and dads, where are they going to learn how to do it? By watching you. Which means you need to. Grandma and Grandpa, you're not off the hook. Don't care how old you are. Let's all say it together. Go tell what the Lord Where are you going for lunch? Well, we're going over to. You know what you're going to do there? <laughs> this week at work. This week with your friends. Uh, this week when you go fishing with a buddy. Let's say it together. Go tell what the Lord has done. Patrick, you're going to need those extra chairs because I get the feeling if we all start going and telling all through our communities what the Lord has done for us, people are going to say, man, can I get in on that? Now, I had a lady come up after this sermon. I preached one place and she said, Jeff, I was really moved, but I just need to confess. I don't know what I'd say. I mean, you know, I've never been demon possessed. <laughs> I've never run around naked. Um, what's, how is my story going to impress anybody? And I thought she asked a really good question. Because what Jesus did for you is even more amazing than what he did for this man, but we may not remember it. So can I give it to you in, in three things? You can just remember it really quick. Jesus has given you a father who will never leave you. When you become a Christian, you're adopted into a family. And maybe your dad was a wonderful guy, or maybe your dad never was around. I happened to be a kid who had a wonderful dad, only my dad left our family when I was 21. He didn't leave of his own accord. He died of a brain tumor. I was in college, and I was angry. Not at my dad. I was angry at God. My dad was a preacher. And I'm 21 years old. And I'm holding my mom as she cries. And my sisters and my brothers, we all stood around his bed that night. December 21st. Four days before Christmas. What do you think we think about every Christmas? And we sang around the bed his favorite song. Some glad morning. When this life is o'er, do you know it? I, oh yeah, oh yeah. I remember standing in that hospital room and us singing that song. But I also need to tell you, he's never met my wife. He's never met our boys. When my first grandchild was born, who do you think I wanted to call? And say, Dad. 
but I will never be too old to crawl up into my heavenly Father's lap because I have a Father who will never leave me. And I can always say, Father, I'm hurting. Father, I'm rejoicing. Not only do I have a Father, thanks to Jesus, who will never leave me, but I have a family who will always love me. Maybe you've got family you're estranged from. Maybe there are times you feel like, I don't know if my family will always love me. I, uh, yeah, I can tell this fast. My sister and I had the perfect family for a while. Four, by the way, is the perfect family. How do I know this? Look at how many chairs are at a table at McDonald's. I mean, it's super simple. <laughs> Go to any theme park, four seats, right? And then my mom and dad had my little brother, five. Jimmy disrupted our life in terrible ways. <laughs> All of a sudden, we were having to fit another in the back seat. All of a sudden, oh, we can't stay because of the Jimmy and Daddy go to bed. All of a sudden, I'm changing diapers. Give me a break. My sister and I, for the first while, just thought Jim was a total nuisance and inconvenience. And then God kind of gave me a, an answer. <laughs> I was about six, maybe seven, when a person came and spoke at the church where my dad preached, and they did this combined Bible class thing, and they talked about adoption and how there are families out there that so want a child, and their child's children whose families, for whatever reason, don't want them, and that precious child can go to a family that wants them, and I thought, thank you, Lord, this is it. We'll just adopt Jimmy to a family that really wants him. I talked to Judy about it. She was all in. And then we thought, but how are we going to convince our parents? And there must have been something going on with petitions right then because I said, Judy will get a petition. So I, I got a piece of paper and drew up, you know, do you agree that Jimmy would be better in a family that wants him? And I took it to all the neighbor kids and had them sign it in our neighborhood. Yeah, you're thinking what I'm thinking. I, I, I mean, I, I, we just did. Would you sign? Would you sign? We got all these signatures. And I remember when I took it to mom and said, Mom, Judy and I have a petition. And I handed it to her. And I remember that she starts reading it and she's smiling. And then she sees all of the friends of her friend's children's who are on this piece of paper. And she said, oh, your dad will want to talk to you about this. <laughs> when my dad got home and she showed him that, I can't imagine the conversation that happened back in the bedroom as my mom was saying, he took it to all our friends and it says we don't want Jimmy. <laughs> my, my dad came out of that bedroom and before dinner he said, Judy, Jeff, in the living room. You don't, you don't get invited to the living room by your parents. It's not a good thing. Sit down. It was called the couch of lecture. You sit down and you're going to be told. And my dad was shaking. He was so frustrated. Did you do that? Yes, I did. Why did you think, well, we don't need Jimmy? And my dad said, let me make sure you understand this. Do you know why we have Jimmy? Now, I was only seven, but I'd heard rumors. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Dad, don't, not now. If this is the talk, not with Judy sitting here, please, no. My dad said, let me explain it to you. And I'm like, oh, 
He said, we have Jimmy because God gave him to us. And when God gives you a little brother, you don't have the right to say you're not going to love him. Do you understand me? And of course we said, yes, son. But we didn't understand. (laughs) It took probably years for me to really understand that when God gives you a family member, you don't have the right to say, I'm not going to love you. Well, guess what? Because we're all related through Jesus Christ. We're all family. Presley just showed up here yesterday came to a restaurant and everybody treated him like their long lost nephew (laughs) presley presley you know anybody who'd been at the restaurant would think wow that must be their cousin or their grandson or or something (laughs) and anybody who came in here would think the same thing in fact when we come in on sundays hey how you doing the hugging the loving this is the way you treat what (laughs) folks when you became a christian you got a family all across the world who will always love you. Amen? Amen. I've gone to cities. I've gone to cities in foreign countries and been greeted by people like I was family because I am thanks to you, Jesus Christ. I've got a God, a Father who will never leave me, a family who has always loved me, and I've got a future that cannot be taken away. Now, I told you my dad died. I didn't tell you how old he was. My exact age right now. So, Leon, what do you think I think when I have a bad headache? I think about brain tumors. Because that's how my dad's brain tumor presented itself, was with blinding headaches. Am I scared of death? I'm not saying that I have a death wish. But I'll tell you this. No brain tumor can take my future away. No car crash can take my future away. No no, uh, terrorist, no global warming, no pandemic can take my future away. Because if the last thing you hear from me is, (gasps) know this, I'm meeting Jesus. I have a future that cannot be robbed from me, and so do you. I think I told you the last time I was here that my favorite cartoon figure was the Roadrunner. The Roadrunner is a great cartoon because no matter what happens, the bird always gets away. As a kid, I thought he had a Ph.D. in escapism or something. I mean, I just thought this is the smartest bird in the world. But as an adult, I realized, you know why? You guys know why. I don't want to break it to you, but you know why the Roadrunner always gets away? He has an agreement with the writer. The writer of the cartoon will always write the Roadrunner a good ending. And that's what we have as Christians. We have an agreement with the writer. And when things look terrible, God says, and then they came to be with me. On Easter Sunday of this year, I was in Verajden, Croatia, preaching. I was not prepared for the fact there would also be 25 Ukrainian refugees there to hear me speak. One whole family had come from Mariupol. It's a city we've heard a lot about in the news. Besieged, bombed. And I met a grandmother and a mother and a daughter. The grandmother's husband was killed by a Russian bomb. Her daughter's husband 
started to serve with the Ukrainian army. And he had been killed about two weeks before they got out. And they were in an Easter service with me, singing praises to God despite their loss because her husband and her husband had a future that can't be taken away. They were believers in Jesus. Friend, go tell what the Lord has done for you. Bow your head with me. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this weird, cool, interesting Bible story. Thank you that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all decided we needed to see this story. But Father, I especially thank you for Jesus' words. Lord, I want to pray right now for the young people of this church. God, I know that teens across America seem to be going to church less and listening to Jesus less. And Father, I pray that Presley will lead this group this summer in an unprecedented effort to just go tell what you have done for them. I pray for the families in this church. Lord, families that have got neighbors across the street or neighbors next to them or neighbors down the block who they may say hello to, who they may see you know, mowing their lawns, but they've never said to them, hey, what do you do on Sundays? Would you come go with us and let's have lunch after church together? Father, I pray that they would go tell what you have done. Thank you for being a father who will never leave us, giving us a family that will always love us and a future that cannot be taken away. And God, will you please forgive us for having sealed lips and silent tongues when you give us moments to share. I pray today all over Woodbury, all over this region, whether at restaurants, supermarkets, or neighborhoods, people right now within the sound of my voice will obey Jesus and tell somebody what you've done. And God, I pray next Sunday this building is indeed packed with friends and neighbors who say, we want this great stuff we've heard about. And Lord, if that happens, may we all be smart enough to give you the credit because it certainly isn't due to, to any preacher or, or, or team or, or member. It's your work, God, and we're just your tools. So, Father, fill us with a desire to go and tell what you have done because love speaks. I pray this in Jesus' holy name and all that agree say, Amen. Amen.